Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In the Old Testament, human patriarchy is portrayed cynically and satirically as bumbling and insecure in its competition with motherhood. Men cannot give birth. In scripture and life, they compensate by building cities, erecting monuments, and making war. Mothers, on the other hand, not necessarily women, but the function mother can give birth. As Luke continues down the path of undermining the things that men build, the temple, and of course, Zacharias himself, his gospel story turns toward two women, Mary and Elizabeth, who become mothers through the direct intervention of the Most High God. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 34 to 35. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 437 of the Bible as Literature podcast, one of the most forceful illuminations of the Hebrew text from Father Paul's Rise of Scripture, is his observation of the function of the word mercy slash womb in the Old Testament and what it teaches us about the function motherhood with respect to God, with respect to woman. Remember that woman and mother are not the same function in Scripture. We're not talking about sociology. We're not talking about the world around us. We're talking about functionality within the biblical storyline. And it hit me forcefully because... I'm married to a wonderful person, we have four children, and I know what it means to see your beloved wife give birth four times. I didn't give birth, but I saw someone I care about give birth four times. I saw her go through that. I saw the work involved. I saw the sacrifice, and that's how motherhood is posited as a function in Scripture, as something sacrificial. Life is given to produce life. And it's such a serious issue, and we've mentioned this before, that in Leviticus, after giving birth, the mother is censured by the law because the act of giving birth encroaches on God's authority, his divine authority. So Scripture takes this issue of motherhood it treats this function of motherhood and the creation of life with the utmost care and seriousness. Now, when we think about the scriptural writer dealing with 
shepherdism in observation of the Syrian wilderness, I think we can take a step back and also think of the scriptural writer or writers dealing with the function of motherhood in observation of human motherhood and what they understood about life around them and what mothers went through in the ancient world. They're not writing about human motherhood, just like they're not writing about shepherds in the ancient Near East, but they're taking something that they observed and using it to make their point in the biblical narrative. And so here, at this point in Luke, where we're dealing with two different mothers, Mary and Elizabeth, it's impossible not to think about Father Paul's observation of the function motherhood in the Old Testament. It's important that we begin with motherhood. The way that Luke is going to explain to his interlocutor about the things that he needs to know, he begins with the mothers. And we have a father, Joseph, who doesn't do anything. He's non-functional, actually. Zacharias starts off as righteous, but then he doesn't even speak, and he's made (laughs) non-functional. So the fathers are not important in this chapter. They're not important. The one father who is important is the Lord, because he's the one who is fertilizing these women. He's the one who's impregnating them. Now, you don't go too far in the image here, but this is how it's working. It's because of his action that this is happening. And you see how important this whole story is. I mean, in Hosea, the Lord is married to the land, and it's the land then that produces all the produce, and everyone on the land depends on this produce from the woman, the land. You have in the family the father dependent on the woman in order to have children, that this woman plays this essential role all the way back to Eve, the mother of all life, the mother of all living things. Life comes from the mother. It comes from the womb. Now, there's an action that happens. That's why you use the hifiel of Yalad, Holid, when you're talking about begetting in the Old Testament, but that's causing to give birth. It's not actually giving birth. The man doesn't give birth. The woman does. And like you said, Father, the work and the struggle and the sacrifice that's required. I mean, when Paul talks about painful work, he talks about a woman giving birth. And he never went through birth. He just trusts that that's the work that we're talking about here. That's the struggle. That's the pain that we're talking about is birth pangs. We see birth pangs, and that is always an image of a painful waiting, a painful labor. So there is a sacrifice, and there is this offering of life that comes from the mother, that comes from the land as mother. Mothers are used. Women are not used. Mothers are used because it's through their giving birth. Just like men, all men can do is they can either conquer a city, build a building, or cause a woman to give birth. But the first two are not a big deal. They're not really that great. They're not really lauded in the Bible. And in the first chapter of Luke, the third one is taken care of by God. (laughs) So the men are certainly sidelined in place of the mothers, not the women, but the mothers. I want to make something clear, because you used the expression in English, birth pangs. That's not 
you waxing philosophical rich, that is a biblical function throughout the text. Paul talks about being in travail with his disciples because he is giving birth and it is painful. Throughout the prophets, you have difficulty and lack of security as being a litmus test of trust. It is the birth pangs, it is the difficulty, it is the disturbance in life. It is God touching the water and stirring the pot that is life-giving. And what's so broken about the things we build, the things we secure, the things we package in our institutionalized lifestyle, is that we by controlling things with our own human hands in order to create what we want, which amounts to our lust for safety and security and comfort, we push God's hands away and we prevent him from doing his work. This business in the Pauline letters about the work of human hands versus grace, the work of God's hands, is the alpha and the omega of the scriptural teaching. We do not want to accept God's grace because very often it comes to us as very difficult birth pangs. We do not want God to do his work for the sake of his purpose. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Not a very wise question. It's a logical question. But the logical question in scripture from the perspective of the scriptural premise which is irrational to human ears It's ridiculous to human ears from the perspective of that premise, the premise that is impossible to human ears. (laughs) Mary's question is not very wise and not very faithful. Yeah, this seems to be the question that everyone gets into trouble when they ask. (laughs) Um, Somehow, Mary is getting away with it for whatever reason. Maybe it's because... In the past, God approached the men, Abraham and Zechariah, and he had to cut them off. So he went directly to the woman and just blocked out the man from the conversation and just said, okay, I'm just going to go straight to the woman and let her know what's going on. We'll have to see how it unfolds. But yeah, normally this is not a good question. Here it seems to function differently, so we're going to have to read ahead to understand. But I like the listeners to be very attentive to what we're saying. We always want Mary to be de facto correct in everything that she says. Realize that Zacharias was actually said de jure that he was righteous and he said the wrong thing. So don't get excited if Mary might be saying the wrong thing, okay? You've got to go with the text, not with your idol of Mary in your head, not with the statue that you carry around in your heart. This is the Mary of Scripture, and we have to be listening to what she says and what the angel actually says to her. We have to be very attentive to the actual words, not to the story you like to tell yourself. The angel answered and said to her, 
the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. This is not the first time that we have heard reference to the Most High in Luke. This is the second time that Luke has made reference to Elohim as the Most High. This text here in verse 35 is de facto the announcement that this child is holy because it pertains to the throne of the Most High God and so therefore he is the king the functional representative of the actual king in the heavens and so therefore he and not Caesar is the son of God in this case the scriptural God not the gods of the Roman pantheon or the Greek pantheon because remember the early Christians were executed because they didn't believe in the gods the early Christians were executed on the charge of atheism because scripture cancels and erases the gods you believe in outside of the Torah scripture puts you inside the scroll you are only allowed to refer to the scriptural God meaning if you're not dealing with the text you're building your own deity literally in Roman law there was a law written that said you may not worship a God that was not constructed by the hand of man which is a law that was written against scripture which posits a God that was not constructed by human hands but your only access to the God not constructed by human hands is through the divine writ. It's a zero or a one. There is no in-between or gray area. You are either dealing with the scriptural God or you are not. So here in verse 35, we are being told it is Jesus, the Son of the Most High, who is being imposed on Mary, which is a kind of disturbance, friends. Remember, this is the Holy Spirit, the tornado we heard about earlier in Luke. So it's not pleasant for Mary. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. And the child is holy because the child, unlike the other gods that are being canceled by this text, pertains to to the scriptural God, Elohim. And the sign is going to be in her womb. Zechariah is like, how is this supposed to be? Gabriel wasn't going to do anything to Zechariah to show that this is going to be. Here's what Gabriel said. Here's what going to do, Zechariah. You're going to see that this is going to happen to your wife, and you're not going to say a word. You're just going to watch this happen. So you can't speak. I'm going to do it. That's how you're going to know by just sitting there and watching it and not commenting. Now, with Mary, 
Mary's going to know because it's in her womb, because she's the one who's going to have to do the work. She's going to have to carry the baby. She's going to have to deliver the baby. And she's going to be suffering when her child is harmed more than Peter feels sad and all that kind of stuff. I mean, she's a mother, right? So she is going to know. But then she is the one that really knows what this means to be son of God. Now, remember in Matthew, we noticed that the son of God title tended to be thrown around by the enemies. Here we see already that the son of God title is used differently than Matthew. We're only in chapter one, so I'm not going to say yet what it means in Luke. We're going to see how this unfolds. But already we need to be on alert. This is not a Pharisee saying, well, who does he think he is calling himself son of God? This is Gabriel saying he's going to be called son of God. Now, there's different ways it could go. Maybe Gabriel is saying they're going to be incorrectly calling him son of God. We don't know. What I'm saying is we're only in chapter one. Please don't bring in your theology at this point about what you think son of God means. We got to wait for the story to unfold and let this term live its own life as it lives and breathes through this text. This is a literary title. So what it means for him to be holy, what it means to be son of God, keep your theology out. Luke is explaining to Theophilus, these are the things you need to know. Keep your mouth shut. If you want to know how this amazing thing could happen, be more like Zechariah. Keep your mouth shut. Just watch it unfold. We do know two things from the overall storyline. And I think it's important to keep doing this, Rich, to explain functionality within the entire context of the storyline, because there's always these two things going on. There's what's happening in Luke, and then how does the function Son of God fit into the overall storyline? So when we're first introduced to Son of God, Son of Man, in Matthew at the outset of the New Testament, we're being taught by the evangelist that the way we think of Son of God from the perspective of a human premise, is sinful because we're interested in human power, human glory. So we are taught that Jesus is just an ordinary Ben-Adam. That is what Matthew taught us. But as the story unfolds and we begin to understand that the way that Ezekiel conceives of kingship and deity is anti-kingly, and anti-human gods, it's something different. As the New Testament begins to teach us this fact, now the New Testament can start to use the term Son of God the way it wants to. Because hopefully by now we're hearing and learning what the New Testament is saying as we move through the story. Because what's going to happen at the end of Luke is what happened at the end of Matthew, what happened at the end of Mark. Jesus who is given this title openly in the first chapter of Luke, is going to be executed. So even though Luke, like everybody else, is saying it's the Greco-Roman gods that need to be canceled, we still have to deal with the basic fact that this Jesus, who is the actual heir, who pertains to the most high scriptural god, who is de facto the reference in the story of the Bible, not the other gods, but the Most High God, the scriptural God Elohim, is the reference to whom Jesus pertains as the true Son of God. This one, Jesus, is going to be executed. And that is the mechanism by which the other gods will be canceled. And that's what made the Caesars so angry. 
That is what brought on the persecutions. That is such a critical point to consider as we come to the end of today's program, Rich. The best way to accept the word of being canceled is to keep your mouth shut. Listen to the word. Listen to scripture. Listen to what other people have to say about the scripture. Learn what you can. Leave the garbage behind. And just listen to the words of the book. When people are unfaithful to the words of the book, it will become clear as long as you know the words of the book. Keep listening. Keep studying. What God does in these stories, it's not what you think he's doing. Assume that, and you have a chance of learning about this God who's going to break down all the images of the pantheon of gods in your head and all the Caesars in your head. Let it do its work. You have to be quiet. You've got to listen to the words. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.